Welcome everyone to episode 110, Blood Stem Cell Lineage. I'm Dr. Kiki here with Dr. Dalen James, and this is The Stem Cell Podcast. All right, everyone, welcome back to The Stem Cell Podcast brought to you by Stem Cell Technologies. Thanks so much for tuning in. How's it going over there, Dalen? I'm feeling really good. I'm optimistic for a change. I see the light at the end of the tunnel going to Mexico in two weeks. Kiki. So you might be, you might be talking to me in Mexico next time. Like light at the end of the tunnel. What is this? What's going on? You see spring coming, huh? Even though Punxsutawney Phil crawled back into that hole and it's supposed to be six more weeks of winter, right? Well, let me tell you something. Staten Island, something i forget his name but we got our own guy in staten island our own groundhog <laughs> and my kid in school my kid in public school told me that he uh forecasted early spring so i'm going with the local news you know what i'm saying Punxsutawney yeah. phil he, he's i don't know he has a good rep but i have doubts yeah well you know for the scientists out there which i know there are many in the audience here statistics don't lie and i'm sorry to say those groundhogs are pretty much batting at chance. <laughs> they're yeah, they're, they're about as good as the human weathermen. Yeah, you know, we have fun. I love the groundhogs. The gra- it's, it's a great little fun thing to do because, you know, why not? Let's have fun every once in a while. But yeah, don't count on those groundhogs for your your weather report. But hopefully... The groundhogs in Mexico. I don't know if there are groundhogs in Mexico. Hopefully they're giving you a beautiful spring. Yeah, it's a lock. They're all drinking umbrella drinks over there. Oh, I would like that. Umbrella drinks, nice sandy beach, beautiful warm sun. But right now we've got stem cell science. Got all sorts of science for you. So let's get down to business. Make sure you check us out at stemcellpodcast.com, where you can not only subscribe to our newsletter, but you'll find all of our past episodes and other great resources all in a pretty new design. Didn't we announce that last week? We got a nice new website. So check that out. And of course, follow us on social media, Stem Cell Podcast on Twitter, Stem Cell Podcast on Facebook, and of course, you can subscribe on iTunes and Stitcher so that new episodes automatically download to your phone. We have a great show today, and we are going to be discussing a really cool concept in lineage tracing, which is identifying how and in what order the hierarchy of stem and progenitor cells are established. This is really important for developmental understanding, for understanding disease progression for just research into these stem cells in general. And to help us with this important topic, we're going to bring on Dr. Fernando Camargo to talk about this topic and walk us through the conclusions of his new nature paper. You ready, Dalen? Wow. I'm excited. I'm not just ready. I'm like on the edge of my seat. But first, we got to do our thing, you know, with the stem cell technologies, peeps, our friends, stem cell technologies. I don't know about you guys. But I always need help remembering the cell surface markers that characterize megakaryocyte progenitors, you know? I'm looking at CD41A. Yep, that's it, CD41A. I got it on my chart right here. How can I get a better handle on this? Well, you got to look at stem cell technology's hematopoietic stem and progenitor cell phenotyping wall chart. Put it up on your wall like me, and you'll never be in doubt. You'll have a quick reference to HSPC phenotypes and frequencies in cord blood. This wall chart also provides an overview of various assays used in identification of different progenitor cell subsets. 
Stem Cell Podcast listeners can get their free copy at www.stemcell.com slash HSPC phenotyping. Listen, guys, you're going to want to get this after you hear our guest today because there's so much that we've gleaned from this novel study of his, and it kind of is resetting our understanding of lineage potential within the native hematopoietic compartment. All right? So get your chart so you know what we're talking about. You won't feel so dumb like I always do. All right? But first, let's round it up. Kiki, get to it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there is a new blood test. Well, it's a blood test that's not quite ready for the clinics, but according to a paper reported online in January 31st issue of Nature, researchers say they can test for someone's risk of Alzheimer's disease just by looking at proteins called amyloid betas that are actually in the blood. So this is a correlative test that seems to predict with about 90% accuracy whether or not somebody has amyloid beta plaques in their brain based on these markers in the blood. And now this kind of stuff is, I guess, the, the grail, the gold standard for Alzheimer's disease, because as of now, I mean, it's brain imaging, it's behavioral tests, it's this very distant, in not very accurate testing regime that we've got, and people have this slow decline, and at one point it's like, I think you're possibly going to end up with Alzheimer's disease, and then all of a sudden it's like, yeah, you've got it. And so if we can catch it earlier... This could be something that could be tested for starting at an early stage of life to get a baseline and actually discover the proclivity of people to get Alzheimer's disease. So these results that are reported mirror a smaller 2017 study that was done by a different set of scientists. And the researchers from that group say it's a fantastic confirmation of those findings. And what it tells them is that we can move forward with this approach, this test with high confidence, really high confidence that it's actually going to work. There's currently no treatment for Alzheimer's disease that can slow or stop the disease, but if you can catch it early, it could improve patients' outcomes. So a blood test could be a wonderful way to identify people who might be candidates for clinical trials of early interventions, of which there are a few. So in this new study, researchers used mass spectrometry, a sensitive measuring technique, and it allowed them to detect smaller amounts of this amyloid beta protein in the blood. And instead of looking at the total level of the protein in the blood, they calculated ratios between different types of amyloid beta. So the researchers were able to find they could discriminate between people who had A-beta amyloid beta plaques in their brain and those who did not. And when they could, they had a composite biomarker score that came from combining two different ratios that predicted the amyloid beta plaques in the brain. So it's promising. It's not yet in the clinics, but it might be headed that way. The obvious application diagnostics is, is one thing here, but I think what's great about this is that, you know, there's this whole window in Alzheimer's that we don't really understand the factors that contribute to progression. If we could see patients who are at risk, it would open up a whole new world in that early asymptomatic window, and we might get a good idea about, like, what's contributing to the pace mm -hmm. of the development and how we can mitigate that. So I think this is going to open up a whole new world. We needed this test 
in order to take the research to the next phase. And now we have this test. So this is great. Yeah, it is fantastic. Speaking of other brain-related disorders and diseases, Zika virus, our favorite oh, no. over the last, <laughs> last year or so. Yeah, oh no. Well, it has been hypothesized that Zika, with its ability to harm the fetus and the fetal brain, might be pretty unique to Zika and that it might be due to a recent change in the virus's genetic material. But others have argued that maybe this ability has always been there, we just didn't notice it before. And so there's new work published January 31st online in Science Translational Medicine that suggests Zika is not alone. It's not unique in this terrible ability to affect fetuses. Pregnant mice who were infected with West Nile or Powassan virus, which are both flaviviruses like Zika, also harmed fetuses. Over 40% of these infected fetuses died, and these are mouse fetuses, of course, but among pregnant mice infected with one of two other mosquito-borne viruses unrelated to Zika, all of the fetuses survived. And so this underscores that there are many viruses, including other flaviviruses, some similar to Zika, that can infect the placenta and the cells of the baby, says George Saad, an obstetrician gynecologist and cell biologist at the University of Texas Medical Branch at Galveston. And this list, he says, keeps growing and highlights the risk from viruses that we are not very familiar with. So West Nile virus and Powassan virus are also neurotrophic. They target nerve cells and they can cause inflammation of the brain or of those membranes that surround the brain. Jonathan Minor and his colleagues conducted some of the initial work in mice that demonstrated that Zika could harm fetuses. And this new study tests the effects of four viruses, two flaviviruses and two alphaviruses, chikungunya and myaro, which have also led to outbreaks in Zika-affected areas. So the numbers that they used in their study were not large. They infected 14 mice early in their pregnancies with one of the four viruses. By late pregnancy, 12 out of 30 fetuses from West Nile infected mice had died. Half of the 16 fetuses from Powassan infected mice had died. And all of the fetuses from the chikungunya and myaro virus infections survived. So the West Nile virus and the Powassan virus also replicate more efficiently in lab samples of human placental tissue, suggesting that we really should be looking at these families of viruses to see what kinds of mutations are responsible and then also to determine what is contributing to outbreaks of neural diseases in fetuses. Oh, geez, Kiki, why can you save the story for when I came back? Uh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Have fun in your tropical climate. Uh, I mean, come on. All those umbrella drinks are going to blow my brain up enough. I don't need any Powassan. Uh, they got the chicken gunya over there like nobody's business. Yeah, you'll be fine from that, though. <laughs> oh, yeah. Good news. Yeah. Good news. So one thing that I think is positive from this related to an interview that we did recently is the idea that if we are looking at these pathogens that infect nerve cells that maybe we can start looking at them like we have other viruses for ways that we can use them to our benefit mm. for inserting genes into neural tissue. Right, right. The neurotrophic effect, yes. Yeah. You know, knowing that Zika is not alone is maybe something we can use to our benefit. It's a good idea, especially the chikungunya. 
won't hurt you, could help you. <laughs> That's right. Getting things into the genome, another study published recently in Science Advances is talking about CRISPR. And CRISPR-Cas9, we know, is being used all over the place to edit genes. And a, this new study published by Eric Olson and others has used CRISPR-Cas9 to treat Duchenne muscular dystrophy in blood samples. So the big thing here is that Duchenne muscular dystrophy is a huge genetic disorder. There are it's the largest gene in the genome. It has 2.6 million base pairs, which means that there are lots of opportunities for mutations and things to go wrong. And so that is one of the challenges about using CRISPR for gene editing in this particular case, because how do you target so many mutations in such a large gene? Well, they discovered that there are not necessarily these little individual mutations spread out all over the place, but they're in hot spots. And so they can't target the individual mutations, but they can target about 60% of the mutations because they've discovered these hot spots. And in what in what their study, they were able to successfully target areas within and around the mutated genes, replace them with healthy ones, and after treatment production of dystrophin, the protein that is downregulated in the diseased gene, it began again in muscle cells in the dishes, and tests of the technique were conducted on live mice as well as dogs, which is important because dogs are very similar to humans in many ways, prior to experiments on human cells in a Petri dish. The mice have been observed for over a year now and have remained healthy while continuing to produce dystrophin. So this is, you know, no cure, but this may be a major step in the right direction for treating this disease. Duchenne's is going down. There's so many, I think, approaches in parallel that are coming out against it that I feel like while it seems so intractable because this gene is so huge, mm -hmm. you know, it looks like we may be making more progress than we think or we knew. Absolutely. Yeah. And like you said, a multi-targeted approach maybe end up being the way it works. But step by step, we will get there. Just like with fighting the flu. Ugh, we're never going to get anywhere on that. I know. The flu season has been peaking. My goodness, just about everyone I know in the month of January was bedridden, sick, confined to quarters, right? The flu has been bad this year, and the current flu shot is only about 10% effective against the strain that is traveling around and responsible for most of the illnesses this year. So looking at this, it's every year you're supposed to get a new flu shot. Some years it works, some years it does not very well. And so researchers are trying to find a different approach. They're trying to find something that's more of a universal vaccine, right? You get one shot that can work against multiple, multiple strains that are traveling. So traditionally, the flu vaccine protects by stimulating antibodies to block the viruses, and it's very specific antibodies that are part of the mutational aspect of influenza. And so they're part of the flu virus that changes all the time, which is why you have to keep getting new shots. And so the trick is to develop a vaccine that ensures the flu can't escape 
the body's first line of defense. And so researchers in this particular study reported in January 19th issue of Science have developed a newly designed vaccine. It's called a, a virus that can be used to vaccinate that they've used for on mice. It targets the body's type 1 interferon system, and the virus is called hyperinterferon-sensitive virus, and mice that are vaccinated with it, an attenuated version of the virus, they survived exposure to lethal doses of several different influenza A strains. And that's big. So it wasn't just one flu strain this protected the mice against, but multiple. When a virus invades a cell, one of the first body signals that comes up are these type 1 interferon proteins, these increased production of proteins that fight the virus. T cells get activated to kill infected cell to reduce the infection level and keep the virus from growing and spreading within the body. Then the viruses that have these viruses have proteins that inhibit type 1 interferon proteins in the cells. And so the researchers looked for influenza strains that were sensitive to the antiviral machinery. They identified several mutations behind this susceptibility, combined eight of the mutations into one virus, which became the basis for their attenuated viral vaccine. And so that has a weakened but live version of the virus. They vaccinated 40 mice. And after 28 days, they exposed the mice and another 40 that were not vaccinated to lethal doses of four different type A strains of flu. And all of the vaccinated mice survived. And most of the other mice who were not vaccinated died. Whoa. Yeah. That's impressive. Somehow I feel like 10 years from now, I'm still going to get the flu. <laughs> very likely. What else? It's still pretty cool. It is. It's very cool. Fingers crossed that we will end up with a universal vaccine at some point. I mean, we keep reporting on this kind of stuff and step by step, closer and closer. It's all about getting the mutations or the these alleles in parts of the viral genome, whether it's the capsid or other parts of the genome that don't mutate all the time, mm. that are more consistent, that don't change and can be used against the virus, as in this case. Hopefully it works in monkeys and, you know, they're going to test it in ferrets probably, they're going to test it in monkeys and then they'll may hopefully get to the point where they can test it in people and hopefully it'll work. Well, I'll tell you what will get us closer in the testing. You know, you just mentioned it, testing in monkeys. One of the things with monkeys as opposed to mice is that they're, you know, normal. They're not inbred. They're not all genetically identical like we like them to be in our mouse strains. It makes it easy to account for, you know, genetic differences that may undermine the consistency of results. It what makes a mouse such an ideal model organism and makes studies of humans, epidemiological or other studies, of humans really difficult as we're all so different but we may be a bit getting closer with uh you know an army of monkey clones this was just after we recorded the last uh, episode so we didn't get into that roundup it was released that they cloned monkeys you know this is a really big deal it's huge huge deal previous studies you know have been trying to do this for a long time since dolly and it's been difficult to get clones of any mammal, uh, non-human primate. In the past, previous studies have led to pregnancies, but they've only gone up to about 80 days of gestation, which is about halfway 
through full term for a macaque, and this case is what they did. This study was notable because it actually added a little bit of insight, I think. Just to put it briefly, they either took cells, the nuclei from fetal fibroblasts, or they took nuclei from cumulus cells that, you know, the cumulus cells are what surround the oocyte when you hyperstimulate to get a bunch of eggs out of a mammal. They, they pop out and they're surrounded by all these cumulus cells. So it's kind of like a local source of nuclei that matches the donor. Okay. And, you know, they took these two variant cell sources. The cumulus cells would be equivalent to like an adult cell and the fetal fibroblast equivalent to a fetal or neonatal cell. So they enucleated the oocytes and replaced them in the classic way using somatic cell nuclear transfer. I think the important results here are that they got success, obviously. That's the most impressive thing. The numbers are using SCNT with fetal monkey fibroblasts. They had six pregnancies that were confirmed in 21 surrogates. And out of all those six pregnancies, they got two healthy babies. When they used the cumulus cells as the donor nucleus, they had 22 pregnancies in 42 surrogates. And those also yielded only two babies, but those babies were short-lived. And I think this is the really impressive part for me because fundamentally the mechanistic advance here is that they epigenetically modified the donor nuclei during the transplantation process. They were able to use this H3K9 demethylase mRNA, okay, and it's protein called KDM4D. Uh, combining that with a pharmacological inhibitor of histone deacetylase called trichostatin A. And with those two epigenetic modifications, they were able to get vast improvement in the rate of SCNT oocyte embryos that went to the blastocyst stage. And that's the real key. That's like the kind of key benchmark. If you can get through to blastocyst, you can get pluripotent stem cells, you can get implantation and further development. So that was a major progress here. And I think what's even more notable is this disparity when they show in the cumulus cells or the adult cell nuclei, although they could get a conceptus in live-born pups, they died young. And this kind of maybe reminds us of some of the ideas we've seen in the past with cloning. And the question the major question, an important question of whether or not a cloned embryo will have the same potential for life or compatibility with life as the animal from which the donor nuclei came from. And it looks like here it really depends on the source of that donor nucleus. Specifically, the fetal cell source seemed to be much more effective and gave totally normal, quote unquote, monkeys came from this, whereas the adult cell they died prematurely. So I guess the interpretation, the idea here is that it's easier to reprogram a fetal or neonatal cell that hasn't gone through all the paces of somatic development in adulthood. It's easy to kind of rewind that to a ground state, so to speak, and you get more successful cloning in that context, which I guess a lot of people thought might be the case, but this is very firm indication that is in fact the case and it's really going to affect the implementation of cloning for whatever purpose if it's going to be livestock or you know we're not going to be cloning humans but if you gotta really worry about how these animals look on the back end it's a really important result for cloning in any context so pretty cool study landmark major big splash we're going to be talking about it for years and years to come
Yeah, I think this really is the the big study beyond Dolly. You know, first it was we've cloned a complex mammal like Dolly, and now it's we've cloned a primate and we've learned a lot from it and it's going to affect cloning moving forward. I don't know, for the the popular science people, they're going to be the people who just look at the news and go, how is this going to affect society? People are going to wonder, is this going to lead to huge clone armies? No. No, it's not. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Perhaps, unfortunately. But yeah, you know, still a lot of insight. I was surprised, actually, in the news. It wasn't, I expect a lot of people talking about, oh, it's imminent. We're cloning humans any day now. But whoever handled the PR on this did a good job of keeping it strictly to the science. So it was, it was nice to see that for a change. Or maybe it was just other ridiculous things going on in the world that distracted people. <laughs> That's right. Do you think it's going to lead to clones used for research lineages of primates? Do you, I mean, that's what they've kind of sold it as. We could create monkey clones. We can do that. Yeah. You know, do you think that's where it's going to lead? I don't know, Kiki. I think there's a fundamental divide here on the ethics of cloning, period, but also the use of non-human primates for research. I think you combine both of those. It's kind of a double whammy. You got the bioethicist and PETA coming after you. So I don't know that it's going to be in common practice, not to mention you saw the numbers. They got four babies from about 100 tries. Oh, yeah. Uh, It's super low. Not great. We got to do a lot better before we even talk about it. Feasibility first, and then we'll see if whether or not it's worth doing. But yeah, it can be done. It can be done. That's that's what's new. Proof of concept. Yep, we've done it. And staying in the realm, I guess, of reproduction. I'm going to talk a little bit about the placenta, all right? In a milestone achievement for better understanding development and function of the human placenta, scientists have derived and grown trophoblast stem cells for the first time. This was led by Takahiro Arima. He's a professor of informative genetics at the Tokohu University School of Medicine in Japan. And this was published just now in Cell Stem Cell. So, you know, trophoblast stem cells, just a little background, they play an important role in interactions between the fetus and the mother. They kind of set up that initial implantation of the embryo into the uterus, and then they mediate the interface between the mother and the conceptus. They form the outer layer of the blastocyst specifically, the blastocyst, which eventually becomes us. And specifically, those trophoblast cells, they form the placenta, providing nutrients to the fetus and getting rid of the waste. So if there's problems with the trophoblast and the nature of its development during gestation, it can lead to disaster for the fetus or the mother. If there's an imbalance in the ratio of trophoblast cells, you can have miscarriage in early pregnancy, or you can have preeclampsia later on, or other conditions that arise from a kind of screwed up interface or a misintegration of the trophoblast derivatives within the uterine lining. So the way they did in this study, which has not been done before specifically from humans, it's been long sought after, but hasn't been achieved. They, they took volunteers early in, in early in the first trimester, presumably from aborted fetuses or from neonates. They took tissue from the placenta and they tried to get the cells to proliferate in vitro, but like many before, they weren't able to get it to work, but they did is they looked at the RNA sequencing profile, these primary cells to see what are the pathways that are activated. And what they found is that they need, there was a lot of protein signaling pathways that seemed to be activated 
and other pathways that seemed to be inhibited. And because those cells were kind of reversed when you took them out and into the in vitro condition, they surmised that these pathways needed to be enforced in the same native way in order to maintain the cell's in vitro platform. And of course, it was correct. Their hypothesis was proven true. When they put these cells into a kind of a cocktail of all these signaling pathway modulators, they found they could efficiently get expansion of these trophoblast stem cell lines. So to quote Dr. Arima, our culture system for human trophoblast stem cells is potentially useful for understanding the pathogenesis of developmental disorders with trophoblast defects such as miscarriage, preeclampsia, and intrauterine growth restriction. Uh, he also adds that the research seems hopes the tool will be useful for medical science. And this is really important, I think, especially when you're talking about drug development and screening, you know, not only in how do you maybe target perinatal disease and dysfunction of the placenta or the maternal interface, but also maybe, you know, to get an idea of what kind of drugs may have adverse effects, undesired adverse effects on pregnancy, specifically on the placenta. So maybe screening platforms that allow you to refine which drugs are safe to administer during pregnancy. So, I mean, first of all, no one's ever done it. This is like the monkey study. They've been mm -hmm. trying to get these cells. They've been trying to get these clones. And, you know, in the last couple of weeks, just like every couple of weeks in science, we're doing some unprecedented. Uh, so congratulations to this Japanese group. Now we can go to the next step, figure out what the deal is in this black box that is implantation and uh, the maternal interface with the conceptus. So, Kiki, near and dear to you, you know what it's like. What's it like in the placenta? You know, What's you don't know it what like your placenta in the placenta? Doing in My placenta is, it's complicated. <laughs> <laughs> it was complicated. <laughs> it was pretty complicated, huh? Yeah. yeah, well, not so much anymore. They just, you know, getting knocked there. down one of the pillars. We're getting there. This getting is, closer. yeah, this is huge to be able to, to culture these lines. This is, I mean, there are so many disorders of pregnancy related to the placenta. And if we can help pregnancies be healthier, I mean, this is fantastic. Understand it. More babies. We need more babies. You well, know, miscarriage is a big deal. Preeclampsia, it's a huge deal. It puts the mother and the baby at risk. Yeah, well, miscarriage for reasons of genetic mutation that wouldn't lead to a viable offspring, that's fine, right? You don't want that to go through. But preeclampsia, that's not something that is the genetic fault of the baby. Come on. So, come on. We need a healthy placenta to support the development of a healthy offspring. That's what we need to work on. That's what we need. We're working on the placenta. I need a better placenta. I need to work on that. <laughs> Get on it. Oh, man. Well, you know... I got a friend, Justin Achita, former uh, yeah. colleague of mine. We were in a, had a fellowship together. He's my boy. And mm -hmm. he just dropped a big story in Nature Medicine. He's out of USC. This, again, study published in Nature Medicine. I'm going to tell you about it. Justin, he studies ALS. And uh, what he showed in this case is that a major cause, the underlying cause of ALS, uh, is this intronic repeat expansion in C9-ORF-72. It's the most common cause of amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, ALS, and also frontotemporal dementia. Okay, so it accounts for 10% of cases in both of those diseases, which is actually a lot. 10% sounds like not a lot, but considering that most of the other cases are like sporadic or you don't really know what the cause is, spontaneous, you might think, the fact that this is, you know, a clear genetic link, it's really an important 
factor, you know, is a big deal when they found that this common repeat expansion was, you know, part of the etiology of these diseases, but no one really understands the mechanism of how it's working. Uh, but that's, you know, in the past now, Justin kind of figured it out. Him and his group, Ying Zhao Shi and Xiaoyu Sebastian Lin, they described how this mutation in C9 or 72 leads to toxicity in nerve cells. So to do this, they did a classic approach, right, which is the IPS disease modeling idea. They took ALS patients with the C9 or 72 mutation. They reprogrammed their blood cells into motor nerve cells. These are the cells that degenerate and die in this disease. But they also, and this is interesting, they had normal patient IPS or normal patient motor neurons, of course, but they also took normal patient blood and reprogrammed those cells to motor neurons but at the same time, they use gene editing to delete the C9 or 72 genes. So they either created the disease in normal cells, they looked at a disease phenotype in affected cells, or and compared these both to controls. And whether the, the C9 or 72 is enforced by gene editing, or if it was you know, in the patient, all the nerve cells with the mutation had reduced amounts of the protein C9 or 72, as you would expect. And I think more importantly, if you added supplemental C9 or 72, you could kind of rescue the degeneration phenotype of these nerve cells. And through a series of experiments, they unraveled the mechanism. What is C9 or 72 doing? Why is this protein important? And what they found was that this protein is important for building lysosomes. All right. And this makes sense. The lysosomes are the cellular components that engulf and break down toxic proteins and other garbage is floating around in the nerve cells. So without enough lysosomes, you can imagine the cells will accumulate these kind of toxic byproducts, eventually resulting in their death. So, you know, the obvious extension of this study and why Justin's getting all big up is because the next move is you look for pharmacological treatments, and they did identify some in inhibitors that could target this issue here. And now they're kind of screening through thousands of potential drugs, some approved already by the FDA, to focus on these lysosomes and trying to rescue these effects in patients. And this would be a big deal because it's something you could administer within the current pharmacological paradigm. You know, when these patients start to get, when they get their diagnosis, especially if it's a genetic diagnosis and they know that they're doomed with this C9-ORF72 thing, they can mitigate the downstream effects, which is pretty much the only real viable treatment, even in, theoretically, I think, right now for ALS. So, Justin Achita, I'm so proud of you, my friend. Uh, you're probably not going to be my friend much longer. Leave me behind. <laughs> please accept my phone call when I call you with my congratulations. This is big. I mean, there are not just in ALS, but in lots of diseases, there's a metabolic issue of cells just not being able to clean up the junk that builds up over time. And understanding how to fix that garbage collecting <laughs> process of the cells. I mean, this is huge. This could really lead somewhere important. This could save a lot of people. And you know, you just said, makes me think about your, my garbage man. The gar right. We should all tip our garbage man, you know. Tough job. Have you ever had one of those winters where the snow is so so thick that the garbage oh. trucks don't run and you end oh, up piling God. up the garbage outside in the street? And I mean, that happens in the cities and you walk around and there's garbage everywhere. I mean, really bad. Can you imagine that in a New York summer? They had a, I remember even when I was a kid, working. they had a garbage strike 
and it, it it ruined everybody's life. You gotta appreciate the little the little parts of our society, just like you gotta appreciate them lysosomes, Keith. We need That's them. Right, we need them. Collect the garbage, break it down, get rid of it, so that the streamlined activity of cellular metabolism can continue in a healthy way. Right. Right. Are we done with the roundup? Do you have more? Yeah, I'm done now because I always talk so much. I cut it to three stories today, but I went deep, Kiki. I went deep. You did go deep. That was positive stories. Your stories were all positive and moving forward in a way that made me excited about the future. Well, now we're ready to get right to it with our boy, Dr. Camargo. The sirens are going. The sirens are going in the background. (laughs) (laughs) That's New York for you. Oh, they're ready for Camargo. I think they're bringing them in. That's right. All right, everybody. Before we do get to the interview, I want to remind you all that stem cell technologies are putting themselves up for peer review. So we talked about this a bit in the last show. It's part of stem cell technologies' mission to support scientists and scientific progress. In addition to their cell culture and cell isolation products that are used at the bench, Stem Cell offers several science communication services, such as the Connexon newsletters, we often tell you about those, as well as this podcast itself. But does that mean they're actually scientists helping scientists? Like they say, they want you to tell them. They want you to tell them how they're doing. Stem Cell Technologies is looking for scientists to peer review them and their activity. If you're skeptical, a curious scientist who's comfortable on camera and wants a free trip to Vancouver in April... This is for you. So if you are chosen to peer review stem cell technologies, you'll be flown to their headquarters in Vancouver, Canada. And like I've mentioned previously, I was there in September. It's a gorgeous city. The mountains are beautiful. The waters are clear. It's a wonderful city to visit. You'll meet the stem cell team and also the fantastic CEO, Dr. Alan Eaves. He was a past guest on the show. You'll see the facilities. You'll experience the company and its culture, its way of being. And your job is to use your scientific investigative skills, detective and scientist in one, and your expertise to peer review stem cell and determine whether they really are scientists helping scientists. What do you think about that, Dalen? I think they are. They're helping us with this podcast. They're giving us knowledge. But, you know, on the ground, when you see them in the facility, you see their devotion to getting the best quality reagents. At least, you know, that's what the impression I got when I talked to Dr. Eves. You know, he seemed like a guy who cared about getting the best results, and then the money was kind of second or third, you know? So it's the kind of scientist you love. He's a great guy. But if you would like to meet him, Anyone out there who's listening, if you want to meet him, if you want to visit Vancouver, Canada and Stem Cell's headquarters, you can apply at stemcell.com slash scientists dash helping dash scientists. That's stemcell.com slash scientists helping scientists with little hyphens in between the scientists. Scientists hyphen helping hyphen scientists. They got to work on that URL. It's, I know. <laughs> this link will be in our show Copy notes. Copy paste. So you'll be Copy able to paste. figure that out. <laughs> All right. So now our interview is coming along. Our guest today is Dr. Fernando Camargo. He's principal investigator at Boston Children's Hospital and professor in the Department of Stem Cell and Regenerative Biology at Harvard University. 
Dr. Camargo's laboratory's ultimate goal is to understand the signals that regulate adult stem cell maturation and tissue regeneration. His laboratory has a strong interest in studying the cellular and molecular biology of hematopoietic stem cells. His group's studies focus primarily on the in vivo roles of transcription factors in microRNAs in stem cell fate decisions, differentiation, and malignancy. Here to discuss this and his most recent publication in Nature, Dr. Fernando Camargo. Welcome to the show, Dr. Camargo. Great to be here. It's wonderful to have you with us. Can you start off our conversation by giving our audience a bit of detail about yourself and the focus of your work? So I'm a professor at the Stem Cell and Regenerative Biology of Harvard University. I also have a main appointment in the Stem Cell Program at Children's Hospital of Boston. I've had a lab there for about eight and a half years, perhaps. I have a group that focuses on many things related to uh, tissue adult stem cells and regeneration. So part of my lab studies the hypo-signaling pathway, which is a very powerful signal for growth in multiple tissues. And the other half of my lab studies how blood is formed. And we like to sort of develop new technologies to look at uh, the biology that is hitting in single unique cells as opposed to studying uh, things uh, in bulk. You've really piqued my curiosity because I know I'm familiar with your work and it seems like two maybe divergent paths. I'm sure they have a common denominator, but, you know, hippo about organ size and regulation thereof. Is that correct? And hematopoiesis is not necessarily, there is no kind of organ, right? The size of the hematopoietic system right. is always one cell. What is the common denominator there? How did you end up being in both those fields? Yeah, that's a great question. I trained as a, my PhD was in hematopoiesis. That was my background. But then what I did right after that was in your typical postdoc. So I was a Whitehead fellow at the Whitehead Institute. What that basically means is that you basically run your own lab directly out of graduate school. And I had to figure out what to do. One of the great things about being in that position is the fact that you can basically start from scratch or do whatever you want. And so while I actually was doing some work on hematopoiesis, developing the models actually that are very similar models that we use in this set of nature papers we've published in the past couple of years, I had a conversation with another Whitehead fellow at the time there. His name is Tim Brumelkamp, who's a fantastic cancer geneticist. This was nine, 2006, maybe. And we started reading about the hippo pathway just because, you know, he was a cancer biologist, I was a stem cell biologist. And back then there was nothing known about this in, in mammals. So we thought it was exciting and we made some mice and we got some exciting phenotypes and, you know, that's the story. So I just kept it going for, you know, it was funny for a while, most of my lab did hippo just because it was very exciting at the time. And that's what we're just rolling. But now with these new models that we've developed, sort of, we still do hippo, but I think more than half of the lab now does hematopoiesis. It's funny, you know, in science, it's always the cliche. You publish a paper, you end up with more questions than you started with. I think it's like a similar idea in terms of a scientific career that you're a great example of. As you start reading hippo, you think it's interesting. You make some mice. It could go either way. If there wasn't right. a phenotype, you probably would stick with hematopoiesis. There's a great phenotype. It becomes a whole career or the trajectory of half your lab. I mean, do you think that there'll ever be a time where you can integrate hippo and hematopoiesis or you're just forever going to be bifurcated in these two seemingly you know, disparate directions? It's a thing. You know, of course, we made all the mice for hippo signaling, right? And one of the first things that we looked at was phenotypes in the blood system. And as far as I can tell, and there's other people that are looking into this, there's nothing, which mm -hmm. is really remarkable, right? So YAP, which is the driver of this pathway, has this 
spectacular growth phenotypes in most epithelial tissues, like really more potent than any other oncogene that you can think of, or as potent as some of them, but zero in the blood. And I think this has to do with, you know, the way this pathway has evolved to work in cells that have, that are in a tissue architecture, that have cell additions that touch each other, the cell density, right, the cell, the matrix. So obviously that this pathway is completely indispensable in cells that don't really physically interact with other cells. But we've looked and we haven't found the connection. Maybe there's something with the niche, but we'll see. We're still searching for that connection. You're doing just fine as it is. I wouldn't reinvent your career just to answer my question, Dr. Camargo. <laughs> You're doing just fine. <laughs> whatever I could have been sort of the greatest in the world at, you know, my two expertise topics, they never pan out. It's good to differentiate yourself, kind of like the stem cells. Yeah. The other thing is that there are different topics for sure, but there's also a lot of commonalities in terms of you think about growth and you still regulate cell numbers, right? In the blood also, this process of regulation is tremendously active. It might be different, but you still think about sort of general themes, right? What is the sort of feedback to the stem cell, right? If you lose a mature cell, if you lose part of your tissue. And, you know, also sometimes I think we like to borrow technologies from, say, epithelial tissues to the blood tissues and vice versa. So it's been quite helpful. What led you to start looking at lineage in hematopoietic cells? This is a long story. So the work that we just published is sort of uh, the second round of our work of this model that we initially published also in Nature in late 2014, which basically dealt with a question that I still think is, is really just starting to be understood, which is the way how our hematopoietic stem cells, our blood stem cells, and how blood forms in the native setting, right? In us right now as we're sitting down. The background for this is that historically, for decades, 90-something percent of the work done on HSCs, on hematopoietic stem cells, was done in the context of transplantation. And there's been beautiful and elegant work by Weisman and many other people uh, on this that, ha that you know, people have used sort of to lay the foundation to make those lineage trees, to make those dogmas about how these stem cells are multipotent and they live for a long time, whereas the other cells don't. So that was mostly done based on this very interesting system at the time, right, transplantation. Back when I was at the White Hair Institute, we started questioning this and really questioning whether you could extrapolate the data from those experiments and those lineage maps and all those conclusions to what happens in, in the native state, right? So you can imagine that in a system where your host is irradiated, right, and you transplant cells into it, there is such massive selective pressure for the cells that you transplant to expand as rapidly as possible and to make as many cells as possible. So you could have some non-physiological cell fates. And at the same time, you, know, you could have cells that are now producing lots of fun stuff and interesting cells in our bodies, not being able to be read out in those transplantation systems because maybe they don't have the capacity to engraft. So we developed this model, and I'm happy to tell you about it some more, now to be able to track stem cells and progenitor cells in a non-transplant context. And this is what has, able, has enabled us to trace fate, basically, and make conclusions about uh, the, the biology of these cells in a non-transplant state for the first time, basically. So just to clarify, I don't want to oversimplify, so please correct me if I'm wrong, but for our listeners, the idea here is whereas typically the cells have been taken out and then labeled and then put in another animal or human, and then you see where they go because they're labeled. Here, you did the labeling. You labeled them in their native niche using a transposon approach, exactly. right? So that you could have multiple species are kind of, uh, yeah, like clones, I guess you would say, that are labeled and then you can track them on the back end following some kind of insult. Is that correct? Absolutely, absolutely. That's exactly what, what we did. 
And there's a lot of interest in the field right now. And some people are calling this cellular barcoding, right? Because mm -hmm. somehow genetically you engineer a unique identifier in the genome of these cells. And because if that cell divides, then the progeny of that cell will carry the same DNA tag. And basically you can track hundreds, if not thousands of uh, clones, right, of a species simultaneously, which is something that you couldn't do before. And so what, if you bottom line it, if you can, I'm sorry again to simplify, but what was the major, I guess, dogma? What did we think was the case from all these transplant studies and what actually ends up being the case in the native system? Let me preface, again, our paper now from the one before. And the main idea before, again, is that hematopoietic stem cells, and this was a textbook idea, were thought to be the only cells within the entire hematopoietic hierarchy that were thought to be long-lived. And they were the only cells that basically, they were thought to be multipotent. It was a very HSC-centric view for this. What we show in the first paper was that it's not the stem cells per se, but some downstream cells that people can call multipotent progenitors. Other people refer to them as transit amplifying cells. It was those cells, but not the stem cells, that actually made most of the blood in an animal, in a mouse in this case, for at least half of their lifespan, which was quite remarkable. So this suggests that these progenitors had a much longer half-life than people had identified using those transplant experiments. And it also suggested that these stem cells per se had very limited contribution to normal hematopoiesis, at least in the first you know, half of the life of these animals, which was you know, tremendously surprising. What we found now in this paper is we looked at many other lineages. In the first paper, we only looked at basically two lineages. Now we look at many other lineages, and we basically are trying to retrace and revisit that hematopoietic hierarchy tree that people had defined with transplantation conditions. And the dogma there was that the first sort of commitment step is cells going into a lymphoid pathway, basically. So cells that will end up making your immune system, your innate and adaptive immune system, right? T cells and those. And the other main branch would be the panmyeloid. And that would include red cells, platelets, innate immune systems, granulocytes, macrophages. So that was the big dogma. So what we have found by doing this sort of clonal tracing is, number one, that the first lineage step right in this hierarchy first involves making megakaryocytes, the platelet lineage, basically. So those cells seem to arise almost fully independently of all the other hematopoietic lineages. So there's something very, very special about this. And what we found there is also that it's actually the stem cells themselves that, in some cases, directly, we believe, are giving rise to these megakaryocytes, to this platelet lineage. So stem cells, normally, at least in the conditions that we assay them, are behave, this is a way you could rephrase the conclusion, stem cells normally typically behave as platelet producers, as opposed to this multipotent population that gives rise to all of your building, blood lineage. And so understanding this, that means that the progenitor cells are giving rise more to the other lineages? Exactly. What is the source for these various cell types and their differentiation? We think it's quite exciting about this, is that you can discover these new properties of these cells, depending on whether they are in their native state versus the transplantation state. For instance, these progenitors that you just mentioned, in transplantation, they only live for a few weeks. If you trace them in, in, in situ, in the animal, they live for probably longer than a year. So we're trying to understand why the difference. If you can figure out, for instance, how to make these progenitors be as long-lived as they are in situ, 
as in a transplant, then probably your bone marrow transplantations in the human will become much more efficient and much more robust. So is that to say and suggest that the native system is more robust in terms of repopulation? Like transplanted cells don't, wouldn't do as well theoretically as if you could activate the same population of cells in the native niche? Like, does that make sense? I think there are different niche, niches, basically. Because the one idea it brings to mind is that the major thing here is that you're taking them out of the yeah. niche. And the niche is probably a spectrum of niches, right? That, that where these things live. So I guess the one takeaway for me is that when you take the system, when you blow up the system, you lose fidelity. And so I guess the shorthand for me would be getting the cells as either to, to shorten the amount of time maybe that they're outside or to kind of freeze them or stall them before you, is that the idea that you can kind of make them not different? As soon as you take them out, they start to become different. Can you kind of mitigate to make them more therapeutic? That's one idea, right? And there's some work published looking at the changes that occur on these stem cells and progenitors once you get them out of the marrow immediately. And there's some interesting ideas there that would suggest that you can actually prevent them from changing. But I think in this particular context is what you said first, is that the niche is definitely changing. And our idea is that in the normal niche, these progenitors are able to sustain perhaps more prolific potential simply because they are in the right place and they have the right signals, they don't have the right neighbors. Whereas in the context of a transplant, right, for you to transplant first, you need to irradiate. And that mm. involves killing basically not only blood cells, but probably also damaging endothelial cells. You've damaged the niche itself. Entirely. This is really terrible for everything. So my guess is that those cells don't really have the, the right place to be at, and they just maybe make the decision of exhausting themselves, because also that's what the system asks them to do. So we're doing some interesting experiments now in which we are testing the capacity of these progenitors, in, and now there's other systems in which you can use to condition the recipient. So instead of fully irradiating the whole animal, you can genetically ablate some cells, for instance, so you can make a space. You can use antibodies, right, to deplete the space so you can open up a niche. So we're doing those experiments and, and test directly whether in those cases these MPPs are now long-lived. I think that's going to be quite interesting, and that could have important repercussions for how we condition a human recipient for a bone marrow transplant. Yeah, it could be much more targeted, potentially, so that it's not just this broad destruction of the marrow. This is a big deal, especially for people, you know, that are... Uh, past their 60s, right? And they need to receive, say, a bone marrow transplant for some type of hematological leukemia. Irradiation would just really make it so much worse for them, right? Mm -hmm. So there's a big push in the field for finding less morbid conditioning regimes for transplantation. This study have any implications for uh, the field of stem cell biology as a whole, the technique of barcoding that you're using? We think so, absolutely. So historically, right, you, people have had these ways of lineage tracing cells that involve pre-recombinase. And for the most part, you can trace a population of cells. Although in solid tissues, you can do, for instance, you can trace with low doses, so you can follow some clones, but you cannot follow thousands of clones simultaneously. So with these new technologies now, and we, and people have, have published a technology in superficial, they say you can use, for instance, CRISPRs to induce the barcoding. So there's different ways in which you can do this. But what this allows you to do is to, first of all, look at a population of thousands and thousands of cells, and you can add some other things to this, right? For instance, you can, in addition to putting the barcode in those cells, you can maybe put the barcode also at the mRNA level. So you can read it out using RNA-seq, for instance. And when technologies such as RNA-seq 
coming of age now, what we envision is that you could basically do the barcoding at different time points in, say, even in development or in during tissue regeneration, and then take the whole embryo or the whole tissue that is repairing itself and just running all of that through a single cellular NSIG machine. At this point, that's super expensive, but the data that you will get from there is obviously you get all the populations, but you also get the lineage information, right? You're going to see what comes from where and what exact trajectory. Yeah, this seems like an embryologist's dream come true. You know, I was trained as an embryologist, and this was the holy grail. If you could really pick apart, tease out the lineage of cells in development, and, you know, the embryonic stem cells were thought to be the major level. We have a human embryonic stem cells. We're going to be able to figure out development. It strikes me that you have an approach here where you can actually, I mean, in a mouse, and ultimately I think you could do it in a human with the chimera experiments that are going on, but uh -huh. you could very... I mean, in a straightforward way, applying this technology, really see which cells that you introduce to a blastocyst become what organs. I mean, that's feasible, exactly. right? Exactly. At the single cell level, right? So I think that's the idea. And you can So there you go. I got an idea. You combine your yap signaling. Here's where a hippo, you can look at organ lineage. Yes! Right. I'm joining your lab, Dr. Camargo. You got it. We're, we're doing this now. And also, you know, hippo and testing competition of clones, for instance, right? This idea of cell competition, you can test it also with lineage tracing, right? Because you could follow clones for the life and, and manipulate them genetically and so on. You can also, for instance, and this is a very basic, and you know, you might appreciate this. If you have this sort of high resolution mapping of development, right? You can ask questions as, what is the fidelity in terms of developing one particular organ? You use this sort of the same cellular pathways together. You use the same number of clones together, right? And you can start sort of changing things in the embryo to see if how this is regulated. You know, I've always wondered about this. I got to ask you because you're the hippo guy and organ regeneration is your thing. Do you think that the same cell or group of cells with pretty high fidelity becomes the same tissues at distances in development? You know, if you take a cell at embryonic day five, will it, you know, with fidelity form the same organs? Or do you think it's very random and there's a lot yeah, of feedback yeah. with cells moving around? What's your opinion? I don't know. I'll, hopefully I can tell you in like a year and a half. Oh, oh awesome. no, you gave me the shortcut <laughs> answer, you son of a gun. All right. Well, a good answer politically, but I'm a little disappointed. <laughs> I can tell you offline. No, no, no. We're not there yet. But that's exactly what we're trying to figure out. It's pretty cool. It's really exciting. Could this be used kind of in cross-species genetic investigations? So I've read recently there's a lot of work on the naked mole rats and their ability to avoid cellular senescence and their seeming, their lack of cancer. There are only a few individuals that have been found to have cancer in the naked mole rats, even you know, in, throughout our history of looking at this species. Can we look at these other mammalian species like the naked mole rat and track their cancer cells, barcode their cells and see more and find more information about how they avoid senescence, how they avoid cancer, how they do what they do? Well, I think that these sort of genetic approaches are sort of very, very hard to do just because you, you, know, you cannot generate transgenic organisms so easily here. But I think if you combine, say, single cell RNA-seq, which I think this is something that people are doing to look at you know, evolutionary comparisons, just because you simply need cells, right? You don't need any markers, you don't need antibodies. You just basically throw whatever cells that you can, throw it in, in the machine, and if you have the right people to tell you what it is, then, then you get an idea. You will be able to compare, for instance, what is the at least cellular and also molecular response within individual cells to say whatever insult. I think this is gonna be quite useful to figure this out. 
And I think there's other strategies that you can maybe, if you want to do more barcoding, that you can do retroviral antiviral studies, but a combination of single cell RNA seq, that's how, what I would start with, that gives you sort of an entry point to look at many different species, right? There's also this, this I think there are the spiny mice, right? They can regenerate their skin and a bunch of other things. You cannot make transgenic animals, but now with single cell RNA seq, you can get a map basically of how the tissues are uh, built together and you can get molecular signatures for this. My guess is that you're going to see a lot of this. Although we haven't done any naked mole rat stuff, but uh, I keep thinking about it. Sounds exciting. It does, doesn't it? <laughs> these these animals yeah. with these amazing abilities. And oh, but they're so hideous. I can't even oh, look at them. Oh, come on. <laughs> you know, if we could live forever but be bald, it would be worth it. That's, you know? Okay, here's my next question, <laughs> yeah, Fernando. Would you rather be hideous with an extra long life or beautiful like you are and live to an average age? There's your next question. <laughs> Yeah, tough I one. I look like a naked mole rat. Because that. <laughs> that's a tough life. Who wants to live forever when you're that hideous? Here, one, getting back to the hematopoiesis for a second, I mean, I don't want to put you on the spot. I know you have a very basic focus, and this is a major mechanistic insight, upsetting all the dogma. But if you had to envision like a therapeutic translational approach here using this specific therapy, what kind of shape would that take? A drug? You know, would it be, in terms of you alluded to earlier, improving the repopulation? So I think the next step would be to try to figure out this, whatever is causing these behavior differences, right? And my guess that's going to be maybe, let's say, a factor produced by the niche. So you can have two types of intervention, one of them adding the factors maybe into the cells before they're transplant or to the host as they're being transplanted, or as we discussed, simply just changing the way we're conditioning these patients, right? So that would be one way to approach this. The second part of this that we haven't talked about it yet, this very strong linkage between the stem cells and the platelet lineage is actually quite interesting. And there's another paper that came out in the same issue as our story that suggested that there's, these stem cells actually that make these platelets are probably the best stem cells that you can have. So if we figure out what's so special about these cells and how you can actually get them to produce even more platelets, that, I think that could be quite useful for situations in which people have low platelet counts and so forth. My guess is that will take you know, some more work, but uh, the implication will be that you'll be able to manipulate specific cells for the production of particular lineages. By the way, I just want to highlight quickly how anti-dogmatic that is, because I, to my appreciation, the megakaryocyte erythroid lineages are like the primitive. You know, that's the first cell that comes from like the kind of non-HSC in development, the extra embryonic progenitors that in, in the yolk sac. So what do you make of that? The idea that what used to be considered as more of a primitive non-HSC lineage is now becoming kind of the preferred derivative of a bona fide HSC. I think you're referring to the fact that uh, hematopoiesis occurs in different waves, right? And you have this mm -hmm. yolk sac derived primitive wave that is mostly consists of erythrocytes. There's probably some places, but also erythrocytes and macrophages. It is a bit unclear how long the yolk sac derived cells live. There's a big controversy on this. But the fact is that, for instance, you talked about erythroid cells and megakaryocyte cells. They've always been linked together, right? We don't see that link, basically. So this contribution of the HSC is exclusive to the megakaryocyte lineage, but not to the erythroid lineage. That's another funny thing also. People have, and this is probably something that you're familiar with, people have reported the isolation of these megakaryocyte erythroid progenitors in multiple contexts. So cells mm -hmm. that can give rise to both of these lineages. But at least in the steady state, we don't see any existence of those. So wow. we assume that likely whenever you have some sort of stress, right, and we were studying the emergency response now, then you could have some sort of uh, plasticity there in some of these cells. And 
these two lineages might be generated. But in steady state, uh, megakaryocytes are exclusively, mostly generated by hematopoietic stem cells without any type of erythroid uh, lineage production. Wow, that's uh, surprising. But I'm, it is, I'm... it's very surprising. Although, uh, if you look at the literature, there have been a lot of reports already linking the stem cell fate with the megakaryocyte lineage. For instance, mm-hmm. most of the markers that people find that are specific to the stem cells, they also had very high expression in megakaryocytes. And people had found these megakaryocyte bias HSCs. So but now we put all of that together and we find that physiologically, right, what HSCs predominantly do is produce megakaryocytes or megakaryocyte progenitor. The other question that this brings is what happens in the human, right? And obviously in the human, you cannot generate transgenic humans or do all kinds of you know, genetic manipulations that could tell you this. But there's a way. And we're exploring this, and you know, hopefully we can get some good insight into this. Now with uh, genomic technologies, right, you can sequence a whole genome of cells. And what happens is that uh, every cell, uh, normal cells, as they divide, there is some very low level of uh, you know, infidelity, and you get some random mutations that are non-disease causing, but they're just there, and they're marks that it will stay in those cells forever. So what we're doing now is doing whole genome sequencing on individual stem cells, and progenitor cells, so we can identify these mutations that occurred somewhere in the previous life and use those as markers or, or tags to see if those mutations are present, say, in the different lineages in the blood. So whole genome sequencing on a single cell level? That's, that's right, that's right. Pretty amazing. It's becoming more and more possible, the genetic sequencing, the whole genome sequencing, it's becoming more and more feasible. It's easier and easier with the nanopore devices and other things that you can do this single cell analysis much more simply. Absolutely. I didn't come from a genomics uh, sort of background, but these technologies are just becoming, like, like you're saying, like so widespread and cheap, basically, that they're permitting every sort of type of biology. You just have to use these tools. Look at human stuff, for instance. I think this is going to be a, a very interesting approach. And people already have found very interesting things doing whole genome sequencing of normal human samples. So uh, we're trying to use this as sort of tool to track lineages and we'll see how it goes. It's expensive right now, but uh, hopefully with time. Yeah, it's getting there closer and closer. Exactly. And, you know, if you're doing these single cell measures, I mean, it, that's going to get more and more accurate with time as well. But I think what you're doing, the importance of what you're doing, I think, is, you know, you mentioned kind of the emergency situation or we've got this steady state, the homeostatic normal situation. And so often in biology, we explore things in the disease state to tell us about the natural state. And I think being able to just explore the normal state is potentially going to tell us a lot more. Definitely. And that's exactly how we thought about this. And we started doing these experiments in the completely native state. You know, if anything, one could argue that maybe these mice are even in a very protective native state, right? These mice are not running around being chased by cats. So maybe, you know, to do an experiment, things change a little bit. And, you know, we're, we're doing some of those experiments, not with the cats, but, you know, with some other challenges. You know, in the theme of uh, your story here, which was dogma, previously upheld, that was overturned, I want to ask you personally your opinion in, about science and, and medicine, really. What do you think, in your arc as a scientist, is the thing or disease or problem that was everyone expected we would never move on, that we've moved the most on, that you're the most surprised at our progress on? Can you uh, zero in on anything that really has surprised you? 
I really didn't think this, I was discussing, these genomic technologies are, are just revolutionary. I did not think they would go so fast. Last year, I didn't think we would be able to sequence this, you know, lots of single cell genomes of these stem cells. But then, you know, as I get, as, you know, I'm talking to people, figuring out that this is actually feasible and it's not that crazy. To me, it's been very, very surprising how fast these technologies have moved. These fields of single cell biology, sort of genomics in general, you know, which as a you know, hardcore biologist, I always thought of them as just decoration in many ways, right? At least from a developmental biology point of view, clearly for cancer, right? This is amazing. But now, I mean, you can actually use these technologies to gain deep insight and they're very accessible. So this has been, I think, something big surprise for me. I didn't think that the technology would be here so quick. And, you know, it's quite amazing. And it's really influencing the way that you're able to approach your work now, which is also amazing. Exactly. Right. Initially, you think about it. Yeah, you're sequencing cancer genomes. But now you can actually combine this with more traditional experimental tools and actually get deeper insights. So it's really cool. Well, thank you so much for joining us on today's show. It's just been wonderful getting to talk with you and hear about your work. Yeah, likewise. This is a lot uh, much more fun than what I thought. So (laughs) (laughs) So glad glad we could give you a good time. (laughs) Great. All right, Dr. Camargo. Nice work. And uh, I guess we'll have you on in a couple of years with your next nature paper or maybe next year. (laughs) Ah, Maybe at the end of the year. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I wouldn't be surprised. All right. Well, thank you so much, guys. See you soon. Thank you. You too. All right, Kiki, you know me. I've always loved the blood. I'm a fiend for the blood. So for me, this is an important conversation to have. I've always thought, and I'm not the only one, I was always told that the whole system that we've been working with, that the transplantation is kind of artifactual and native hematopoiesis is a bit of a black box. So I think it's nice to see that someone has addressed this. And what's, I think, more impressive is that it kind of upset the dogma slightly as to what the lineage uh, hierarchy paradigm is in native hematopoiesis. So I'm very pleased. I'm very pleased with the way this went. What do you think? Oh, I think it was a fantastic interview. And this research that he's doing, it's setting benchmarks for the future of this kind of research. This is all good stuff. Moving forward, but you know, it is time for us to close this show with our stem cell podcast rant. And this rant, as you well know, is our chance to complain about something that bothers us and that most likely bothers you out there. So Dalen, what are we ranting about today? I don't know what you call them. They're like Monday morning tycoons, I want to call them. Monday morning astronauts, all these people. We're talking about, you know, it'll be a week on by the time this airs. But this Tesla, this, uh, what do you call it, SpaceX thing with the Tesla inside, like a Cadbury egg, was so amazingly, I think I'm going to look back when I'm growing up and say, I was alive when they did this thing and it was a big deal and it's all pretty amazing. I'm still kind of getting over it. But what's diluting it is all these haters and not even haters. I think everyone's like, oh, yeah, it's exciting. But he should have done this. He should have. When he announced they had the test and the thing, I thought it was so awesome. They got this astronaut in there. They see in the Earth. There's a car floating around in space like that's a really spurring my imagination. And I think the kids of the world, that's what we need to see. But there's all these haters out here saying he should have put this in the payload. He should have put that in the payload. You know what, people, when you make 
your billion dollar venture, billion plus, that's going to change the world. You can talk about what you want in the payload. Am I right, Kiki? I think you're totally right. I mean, everybody's got an opinion, right? And they're free to voice it. But at the same time, I mean, yesterday was this moment of inspiration and being able to see the spaceman in the Tesla in orbit going out towards Mars, heading toward the asteroid belt. I mean, this is the longest road trip ever, <laughs> right? For an electric car. And it's so inspiring. It's this moment of brilliance that anybody, a child or an adult can look at. And like you said, say, I was alive when that happened. And I bet even though there weren't like a bunch of student projects in the payload, even though there weren't satellites that are going to be measuring things about the Earth's atmosphere and getting us data, you know, even though they didn't do something that was functional and it was pure folly, it probably inspired an entire generation of kids to think bigger and to want to go into space exploration, to want to go into engineering, to want to go into science and technology and to see that the future is exciting. And so everyone out there who's hating on it, you can just shush. shush, yes, shush. Seriously. Just shush. Take, a, take a few days to let all of us who are in awe enjoy it <laughs> before you start talking about what you would have done. Yeah, I don't care what you would have done. You don't have a space company. Elon does, and he put a car in space, and that is great. <laughs> So uh, that's that. Yeah. I'm, I'm ranting at the haters. Yeah, okay. all you haters. All right. I'm yeah, I get I am so excited. I really am. Yet since yesterday, I've just been on this natural high. I was I was so low because of political news and all sorts of stuff that was happening that you know going on. And then the biggest rocket on the planet. And double booster rocket landing. They stuck the landing. I mean, it was just technology and engineering. <laughs> I'm still on a high. The Geek possibilities. Kiki is doing her space geek thing right now. She's really geeking out. I oh, it. I love it so much. I really do. Actually, I don't want to know if you're a hater. Don't contact us. But if you are as excited as I am about this, as excited as Dalen is about this, let us know. Send us a tweet at Stem Cell Podcast or message us on Facebook or you can email at info at stemcellpodcast.com. And you can always take that survey that's sitting there at stemcellpodcast.com too. Daylin, this concludes episode 110 of the Stem Cell Podcast. Thank you for joining us. Next time we're coming from space. <laughs> that's right. 